0: I'm really excited about this new series that we're starting today. I love the book of Daniel, and um, I I don't know, maybe I'm just the only one that's really pumped about it, but if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 1? And if you're looking in one of the blue Bibles that is placed near you, you can find that on page 737, and why don't you stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 1 together? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Hananiah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Will you pray with me? Father, these uh, words might be familiar to us or unfamiliar to us. We might have heard them uh, long ago uh, in a children's Bible as a kid's um, Whatever our experience, God, I pray that you would speak to us now, by your word and spirit, through uh, these words written long, long ago. God, would you give us ears to hear what you're saying to your people, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I remember many years ago when I was growing up, um, going on a summer vacation with our family, and we were, I think, up in Northern California somewhere at a lake. Um, You know, it was warm, we're swimming in the lake, and uh, we got on this boat, I I think it was like a paddle boat, I don't even remember, it was so long ago, but we went out into the the middle of the lake, and we found, you know, kind of near the shore, in the middle of this lake, there was this huge, uh, what looked like a huge um, tree stump, Um, and I thought that it was attached, like, to the ground. And so we're in the middle of this lake and I jump off the boat and I j- get on top of this tree stump and I think my little brother did the same and we're, we're messing around and we're having fun and this thing seems surprisingly solid. And then kind of without warning, I mean we'd been on this thing for two or three minutes, without warning all of a sudden we just realized that like the water level was rising all around us. And uh, this, this thing that we thought was attached to solid you know, footing below us was sinking. And there we were in the middle of the lake with water coming up, you know, the boat had left because they thought they were hilarious. And uh, and there we are sinking in the middle of this lake. And I thought of that this week as I was thinking about this passage, because I think that that is a little bit what it can feel like to be an adult in the United States in October of 2016. The sense that the, the, the solid the solid foundation that we thought was undergirding us was under our feet um, doesn't seem quite as solid as we once thought. Uh, I don't know how you think about the world that we live in or the culture that we live in, but I think that it's undeniable that however you describe that change, that something has shifted, you know, in the last number of years, right? Um, you know, maybe it, for some of us, it started with like the housing bubble, crisis, whatever, um, I was talking with a friend a couple days ago, and he was talking about the you know, agonizing decision of buying a house in Southern California, and he's talking about this trade-off, like, do we stretch ourselves as thin as we can, spread ourselves thin to buy as big of a house as we possibly can, and hope that it'll all work out in the long run, or do we make a maybe more like financially sound decision, buy a house we can li- reasonably afford, and just hope that it's actually enough? And so we can all sympathize with his pain. He was actually talking about buying a house in the mid '80s for $115,000 in, uh, in Orange County, <laughs> right? Oh, to have those problems! Um, you know, we many of us grew up thinking you could never go wrong buying property. That's the one investment that's always going to pay off, right? And yet, um, I mean, just I mean, I can see the looks on your faces right now. <laughs> Right? No longer is that the case. And, um, you know, when, when the water is rising and it feels like we're in debt up to our eyeballs, we can start to think, you know, that, that promise that we felt like was made to us that, um, you know, the American dream is owning your own home. Um, and it feels like that promise hasn't really paid off. Um, or what about education? No matter what, you need a college degree. Right, and so how do you afford a college degree? Well, you're 18 years old and you don't know any better and people tell you, I just borrow the money, everybody does it, it's no big deal. And uh, you'll get a job, if you have a college degree, you can never, like you will always have a job, right? You'll be fine, you pay it off and nobody thinks about it and because you're 18 and you don't know what you're doing, you listen to people and you take out you know, student loans and you graduate uh, and then you're stuck because you already have a mortgage, like a mortgage sized payment. and you're thinking, you know, the promises that were made to me aren't necessarily going to come true. Or here's another story that, that uh, we're told that we believe that we live in the most peaceful nation on earth, that we are safe, that we are protected, that no one can match our might, that everybody loves us anyway, and so what could possibly, you know, go wrong? You know, um, Ashley and I lived for three years in, uh, in another country, and we discovered very quickly that actually not everybody loves us. America, right? Um, That that uh, that just the way we talk was like a a dead giveaway. Not everybody was super excited about about who we are and what we represent. But of course, more than that, um, you know, maybe having grown up, many of us in relatively peaceful times, there's now terrorism, there's war, um, or there's um, there are issues that we thought had long been solved, right? There are um, uh, like racial uh, issues in our country still, um, and there are police officers that are that are targeted, right? Um, and we can look at all of this, and and it's not hard to start thinking, you know, this this doesn't really feel exactly like the country I thought that I was growing up in. Um, however, you would define that shift, you know, whatever your, you know, I'm not even going to say <laughs> political persuasion, whatever. What, whatever the grid through which you screen those things is, there, I think it's undeniable that something has changed. And it feels like, it can feel like we are trying to hold back um, a rising tide. And maybe most difficult and damaging in all of that is this the, the emotional toll that like, this uncertainty takes on us. Um, you know, we we used to think, you know, uh, I mean, maybe we didn't, but as kids, certainly, you grew up thinking like, ah, oh, the future's fine, like I don't need to worry about it, right? And just the 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 the, um, the emotional stress of what does the future hold um, bears down on us. I was listening to somebody who was saying that one of the main causes of depression is anxiety about the future, and he was saying that there's actually a school of of, of counseling that says You don't actually need to help people solve the problem, you just need to help them identify what the problem is, and that alone um, can release the weight of depression and anxiety, right? Not even knowing that there is a problem, but being able to even put our finger on it um, is an incredibly difficult way to live. And so I think there's a general consensus that this moment that we find ourselves in Uh, is different and that our country and our world and our future is less stable than it may have been at some time in our memory. And while we might all be relatively able to agree on that, um, the problems and what to do about them, there's like no consensus on at all, right? Um, What should we do? We are increasingly polarized about what we should do and some voices suggest that we need to, you know, there was this golden age in our past and if we could just return to that, again, that everything would be fine. And other people say, no, we can't go back to the past. What we have to do is work together and overcome our differences and move ahead together, right? I mean, very broad brushstrokes. Those are essentially the two competing options of voices just like yelling at us in our culture. And in the midst of this chaos and the cacophony of sound, and voices shouting at us. Some of us think we might know what to do, but most of us, I think, if we're honest, we have to admit that we're confused. And, uh, and we wonder, you know, how, where can we even find any help in the midst of this? Uh, where can we find a guide that can, can lead us through um, you know, un- uncertain times? Where can we find help? Where can we find peace? How can we regain our stable footing again? Well, if you feel like you're living in uncertain times, then there is good news for you in the book of Daniel, because in the book of Daniel and in the person of Daniel, um, we see how we can live faithfully when the world around us seems to be uh, ever turning, ever-changing. And Daniel shows us you know, not who to vote for. I mean, let me just say this clearly. In this series, I will probably uh, at least acknowledge the existence of politics. And I'm not going to say the name of any candidate or tell anybody who to vote for because the Bible doesn't do that. But Daniel shows us not who to vote for. He shows us how to live faithfully when the world is shaking around us and the future is uncertain. And this is the story of the book of Daniel. And in about 605 B.C., the Babylonian Empire conquered the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen nation. And the Babylonians, um, under uh, the brutal dictator Nebuchadnezzar, they invade Jerusalem. They lay siege to the city. They just destroy the city. Uh, the 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 temple is ruined. The capital city Jerusalem is ruined. And uh, what they do after they have um, besieged the nation is they take about 25 percent of the inhabitants of Israel, and they take them about 700 miles away into exile in Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. And there they stayed for 70 years. And it was a total disaster for God's people. Uh, God, One of God's prom—the promises that God had made to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And inherent in that promise was, uh, not even inherent, explicit in that promise was that God would give them land and that they would be a country, they would be a nation, that they would be a people. And God um, you know, now is absent, apparently, and God's people have been overrun, and it's a total disaster, and it shook God's people to the core. And you can imagine, I mean, there are psalms in the Bible saying, how can we, how can we sing the songs of God in this strange and foreign land? How can God be faithful to us? What does it mean for us when God has failed to protect us? And Daniel, one of these captives, uh, one of these exiles, one of these prisoners of war, is a young boy named Daniel. He's probably a teenager when the book starts. He's, um, he's not like a famous prophet yet. Uh, no one has ever named their son after him yet. Um, he's just like an 18-year-old kid, you know, 15 to 18 years old. And he's carted away um, into exile in Babylon. And the story of the book of Daniel follows Daniel's life for about 70 years. And we see him going from being a prisoner of war, taken as an exile to Babylon, to becoming the number two in command in the nation of Babylon. We see him um, leading Nebuchadnezzar, the brutal dictator, to faith in the living and true God. And we see Babylon getting overrun by Assyria, uh, not Assyria, Persia, Um, And Darius the Mede comes in, and he is killed and wiped out the Babylonian court, but he says, this Daniel guy, I like him, and I'm going to keep him. So Daniel outlasts the Babylonian empire. And there's some speculation, but some people think that having already led uh, Nebuchadnezzar to faith in the God of the Bible, that Daniel actually leads Sirius um, the Great, or Cyrus the Great, to um, faith in the living and true God as well. So, I mean, that's a remarkable story, right? Um, How is that possible? How did that happen? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that if God God can use Daniel in the pagan courts of Babylon and Persia, that God can can prove himself to be faithful in your life as well. And that Daniel might be just the guide that we need as we think about what it looks like to live today in a world where the future is uncertain. I think the book of Daniel is exactly the book we should be looking at at this time in the history of our nation, which is why I picked it, right? But um, what can we learn from the book of Daniel? How do we live faithfully when our foundations are shaken? Well, there's two things that I I know that's kind of a long introduction, but it's an intro to the whole book, right? So there's just two things I want you to see um, and answer that question. How do we live faithfully when the world around us seems to be shaken up and constantly changing? And the first thing is that there is something you need to know, you need to know that this is my father's world. You need to know that God is in control. Now, I know that that sounds like a, like kind of a, it can sound like a trite or generic thing to say. Well, no matter what, God is in control. And if you just, you know, soldier on, buck up, everything's going to turn out all right. And, you know, um, it can be like shallow comfort, right? But um, what Daniel is saying, and what we see in the book of Daniel, is not this kind of generic, um, everything's going to turn out okay. But what the book of Daniel is saying is no matter what is going on in your life, all of the circumstances in your life play out in the context of the world of which our God is the ruler. That God is in control of these specific circumstances of your life. And knowing that God is in control of the specific circumstances in your life, and that everything takes place in the context of our Father's world, is what can allow us to live with confidence when the future seems uncertain. It says in this, the, uh, the first two verses of Daniel, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, uh, of Jehoiakim King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, I know there's a lot of unfamiliar names in there, but if you know the, like, kind of the story of the Bible, like what is going on? God gave the, the, the nation of Israel into the hands of the pagan king? How in the world can that possibly be? Why would God do that? Well, we don't have time to like look at every single instance, but the, the Bible is full. Uh, the Bible records over and over and over God coming to his people and saying, Look, I am your God, and you are my people, and I will be faithful to you, and you are to be faithful to me. But if you do not remain faithful to me, um, if you make alliances with pagan nations, if you look to uh, someone other than me as your God, uh, for your salvation and your protection and your sustenance, sustenance, that eventually discipline will come. And finally, after hundreds of years of warning, God relents. And God finally gives, uh, in his goodness, He, in his fatherly discipline, he disciplines his children by allowing them, by sending them into exile under a foreign dictator. And this is not an accident, God is in control and it's his world. I have to say that when I think about the way that, um, that as Christians, those of us who are Christians, um, when I think about the way that Christians typically interact with non believers and, uh, and with like kind of a non Christian culture in general, the word that tends to come to mind is whiners. <laughs> that we complain. That we whine, that we are not happy about the way that um, that things are going in the world. And it seems like it has never occurred to us that maybe we're getting exactly what we deserve. Um, that despite, you know, uh, that maybe the analysis like things are not going well isn't, isn't so um, off base, but the reason or the, the finger, you know, uh, the, the person that we're fingering or blaming for that um, is off that maybe we're getting exactly what we deserved. that we have not been faithful to God, uh, that we've not been humble, that we've been proud, that we have not been loving, um, that we've been more quick to point out the faults of others than confess our own faults. And God is exercising his fatherly love by disciplining us. And so we don't whine because often our circumstances are, are, are our own fault. right? We can't be whiners when we're the ones to blame. And God will use the circumstances in our lives to wake us up to the reality of who he really is and what's really going on in our lives and in the world. Okay, so we don't whine because God is in control. But secondly, uh, more than that, we don't whine because God is in control and we are people of the resurrection. Um, You may have noticed when I read this in verse 2, it talks about this idea of the, the vessels from the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, being taken in to exile in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels from Yahweh's temple and puts them in the temple of his God. Um, in Babylon and, and what exactly is going on there well the objects of the temple in Jerusalem uh, the dwelling people uh, the dwelling place of God the place where God has made his presence known on earth are taken into exile um, and it, it, it's the Babylon's kind of gloating they're saying not only can we beat you militarily but our gods are better than your God uh, and you may think that your God is great but he could not save you from us um, and what's happening what we see in this is this, that God is with his people in exile. It's not just the people themselves that are taken away into exile, but that God himself allows, God allows himself to go into exile with his people. That even when we suffer, even when we are in Babylon, even when we're in exile, even when we experience his discipline, that he is with us. That he is with his people. That God is willing to suffer shame in order to wake his people up and bring healing into our lives. He's the God of resurrection, and he is able to uh, to deliver us from the most dire of circumstances. So we don't whine or complain about what happens to us. We don't whine or complain about the world around us because we have no idea what God is doing in the midst of our circumstances. Several years ago, like, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, um, I was... um, I was the pastor, the first the first church I was a pastor at a seminary, and it was kind of getting to the time where we needed to move on from there. And um, we had I had been looking for a job, and I had found a um, a job at a at another church. And I talked to the, the senior pastor of this church, and we were going to go work for him. We were going to move to another part of the country and and work for this guy. And so I quit my job, and I'd given my notice, and it was like the end of April. I'm done. I'm out of here. Uh, and we're gonna move, you know, somewhere far away. <laughs> and um, about the beginning of April, I got an email from that pastor that just said, like, it's not gonna work out. <laughs> I think he maybe thought like a fax was, you know, a little bit too impersonal, so he sent me an email. <laughs> like sent and I'm like, we've already, we've like, I've quit my job. We have given notice on our apartment. We're moving out. We went back to our. Um, our landlord and didn't tell him the circumstances of my job, but I'm like, is there any way we could stay for a couple of more months, actually? Um, and and I remember just this feeling of total helplessness, and God, you know, just praying and crying out to God and saying, God, what in the world are you doing? And um, eventually God provided another job, and about a month or two after we were going to, um, you know, we would have moved on to that other church, um, a friend of mine said, oh, did you hear about this man, the pastor, and I said, no, uh, we don't talk a lot anymore, <laughs> and he said, um, he said, uh, well, the story is that he had he'd been having an affair for, for years, like decades, and it had come to light, and when the church found out, there was like a church split, and then the church closed, um, and I would have been just stuck right in the middle of that. And I remember thinking you know, how frustrated and angry I was about God saying no. And realizing that you know, in retrospect that God's no was actually him saving me and our family from something that would have been much more difficult to bear. That it turned out his no was his care and his protection and his love. And I had no idea what he was doing, but he was in control the whole time because he is my father and he loves me. Some of us are distressed when we look at the world that we live in. Some of us are distressed when we look at what's happening in our lives, and we see sickness, and we see you know, troubles with jobs, and we see our relationships that are strained, and we wonder what in the world God could be doing. And Daniel shows us that God is in control, and that we can live with hope no matter what life throws at us because this is our Father's world that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he knows what he is doing, even when we have no idea what he is doing. God is not surprised with your circumstances. God is with you, and he is in control, and he loves you. Okay, that's the first thing, and that's, you have to know if you're going to successfully navigate life in an ever-changing world, you've got to know that God is in control, that this is our Father's world. But the second thing you have to do, I think, is, is actually more difficult, because the first thing is just something you have to know. But the second thing is, is something you have to do. Um, the second thing is, is the way that we have to act. And I think the way that we have to live in the um, ever-changing world that we live in, we have to live with a subversive love. We have to act with a subversive love. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that we have to do two things simultaneously. There are, there are traditionally basically two ways. That, um, that Christians have chosen to interact with the world. And the one is that we just withdraw completely from it. We you know fold our arms, we talk about how awful the world is, but we do not interact. And the other is to like assimilate, right? And to just become one with the culture, the broader culture that we find ourselves in. But what Daniel shows us is that it's like a combination of both that's really not either of those options. It's, it's, it's a subversive, challenging, and yet loving approach to the culture, the world that surrounds us, and um, typically I think that the, this is important to say typically one of those is much more appealing to us individually than the other uh, that just temperamentally personality the way that we think about the world um, we tend to be drawn to loving or subverting, uh, and yet what the Bible is asking us to do is both at the same time um, let me show you what I mean did you notice um, did you notice as we read Daniel 1, like all of the ways that these Jewish boys that are taken to, um, to Babylon just sort of give in. Um, they, um, you know, they don't protest as they are taken as captives to Babylon. Right? They're, they're taken away from their home. They probably never saw their parents again. They probably never saw their families again. They certainly never saw their home again. Uh, and yet they go without protest. They're educated in Babylon. It says in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Um, you know, when you think that when we talk about this like three-year education that they got in Babylon, don't picture them sitting in like neat in desks, like in neat rows in a classroom. This was a a full-on campaign of indoctrination. It would have included, um, you know, education in like astrology, sorcery, the occult, um, the, the, the the mythology of Babylon. Um, it, it would have been a completely pagan indoctrination. It wasn't just like a uh, you know classroom education where we're going to talk about um, uh, you know here's some interesting um, you know cultural diversity opportunities, right? This was a um, uh, this was meant to strip away their Jewish identity to uh, to strip away their faith in the living in true god and to assimilate them into the culture of the babylonians to replace their belief in god with paganism okay um, and they don't complain about the education system <laughs> right i mean what's wrong with this country today it's oh, it's the education system the government's taking over right that that does not happen i mean that may be true or might not be true but that they don't say anything about it um, what about their names? And you notice this thing that, that they're all given new names. What's that all about? Well, their um, name, Daniel, um, El, you know, at the end, is short for Elohim, which means God. Um, and uh, Hananiah, Yah for Yahweh, and Mishael, and Azariah. They are all, these four Jewish Hebrew boys are all named, you know, Their names reference the God that they love and that they serve. And, uh, and so changing their names is part of this indoctrination process. Um, they're given names that reference, they all have this kind of Bel in them or Baal, which is the, um, the Babylonian, uh, one of the Babylonian deities. And again, they just take it. They just, you know, they, no, no complaints. Um, they, just, they just embrace it. And uh, I think what we see from all this is an astonishing willingness to go along, to enter into the culture, to embrace Uh, whatever possible they can in the culture that they're brought into, to love the place that God has put them. But there comes a point where Daniel says, okay, we love, we love, we love, and yet we must also subvert. um, there, There comes a point where he says we have to draw a line in the sand. He says we can go no further. He says we're happy to live in Babylon, but we will not give our hearts to Babylon. We'll submit to the education. You can even rename us, but we can only go so far. And the funny thing is where they draw the line is probably not where most of us would draw the line, right? They say, but we're not gonna eat this Babylonian food, right? Now, I don't think that's where I would have drawn the line, maybe, but um, and there's been a lot of debate about why do they, why do they not eat the king's food? Um, you know, some people think that uh, they didn't eat the king's food because it's, well, it's been sacrificed to pagan deities. But the reality is that when you live in Babylon, everything has been sacrificed to pagan deities. And so you're going to starve if you don't eat food that's sacrificed to pagan deities. So that can't be the rule or the, the reason. Some people think that um, they don't eat the food because it violated the Jewish kosher laws. And that might be some of it, but there's, um, it doesn't all line up perfectly. I think there's an explanation that's a little bit more nuanced. Um, if you think about what Babylon does and the way that Babylon treats the people that they have conquered, it's really pretty ingenious. Um, If they had come in and just wiped out the Israelites, you know, the the few uh, survivors, what do they do? You know, they take those few survivors and they make them slaves and they oppress them. And then you have generation after generation after generation of slaves in your country who hate you and who are going to do everything they can to rise up against you. And so they don't do that. Um, They wipe out the city and then they take the best and the brightest From Israel and they take them back and they sort of woo them and they give them a first-class education Um, and they they make them nobles in Babylon and they they provide for them and they even eat food that comes from the king's table and it's this like it's like we're going to um, we're going to woo you we're going to romance you we're going to lull you into assimilation by making you love us by making you so happy that we have come to, um, you know, to, to capture you, I guess, um, or maybe maybe what they're doing is saying you won't n- realize that we have captured you because you'll love us so much. And Daniel seems to recognize this, and it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with the food itself that they're eating, but it's almost like Daniel seems to know, um, you know, what one of the things we pray when we, Daniel never prayed the Lord's prayer, but when we pray the Lord's prayer, we we pray. You know, uh, our Father in heaven, um, give us this day our daily bread, right? That it's God who provides every day what we need to enjoy life um, and to sustain life. And Daniel says, you know, you can rename me, you can take me away from my home, you can, um, you can give me a, a, a pagan education, and yet by eating the king's food, They're allowing the king to sustain and to satisfy them. And Daniel says, I can live in Babylon, but I will not give my heart to Babylon. We have to draw the line somewhere. I can live in Babylon, but my satisfaction and my sustenance comes from God alone. And I don't know how that sounds to you, but that kind of hits me like a ton of bricks. Because, man, like, we live in a wonderful place, don't we? And we... um, The idea that faithfulness to God might somehow be found in resisting the pull of a comfortable and easy life. Um, Wow. (laughs) like Is that something that has ever really occurred to Christians in the 21st century? That faithfulness in uncertain times isn't just a matter of how faithfully you show up at church or how many Bible studies you're involved in. But part of being faithful to God looks like loving a culture that doesn't always agree with you, but, but resisting the temptation to be lulled into a life of comfortable assimilation. I can live in Babylon and I can love my neighbors and I can work for the good of my community, but I will not give my heart to Babylon. You have to draw a line somewhere or else you're just like, um, you know, the frog sitting in a, in a pot of water and you never realize when it starts to boil. So where have you drawn the line? Where have you drawn the line? Um, Where could you look at your life and say, my life looks different in these ways because I am a Christian? Um, Where has your family drawn that line? You know, there's a lot of things I could say about that. I hesitate to say this a little bit. I never want to use myself as like a positive example, but these are just some things to think about, right? One of the things that our family has done, one of the decisions our family has made is we are just not going to live this like, uh, that we're gonna eat dinner together as a family, right? That um, we're not gonna get sucked into the busyness of life where we end up just consuming calories like it's a, just a simple biological function in the, in, the, you know, in the car as we drive from activity to activity to activity. Uh, that we, we tell our kids at dinner all the time that uh, dinner isn 't just for eating it 's for talking and it's we really try to emphasize this with our kids it 's also for listening. <laughs> listen at the dinner table um, that we 're going to resist the temptation to have our um, to, to live over scheduled lives, and we're definitely going to resist the temptation to allow our kids to live over scheduled lives that we 're not going to have our evenings and our weekends dictated by tutoring and activities and sports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that we have said as a family is that we're going to be in church as a family on Sundays, that that's a priority for us. And we could go on. Listen, I'm not saying that those are exactly the priorities that you have to have made. But what I would say is that if you could not point to certain things in your life and say, we have made these decisions Um, because we are resisting... I mean, if there's nothing you could say that this is what we do because of our faith and it looks different than our neighbor's, that probably what's happening is you, without realizing it, the water is getting turned up and it's reaching boiling point and you're entering into assimilation mode. If you can't articulate how you are different, then you might not actually be different. You know, the thing that makes Christians different... Can I just say... I mean, I hope this is somewhat funny to say. Like, can we just all agree that the thing that makes us different cannot just be a sticker on our car? Please. (laughs) Or like a t-shirt with some sort of obscure meaning on it that doesn't really make sense (laughs) to anybody. Um, (laughs) uh, The thing that makes us different is that we've been captivated by the beauty of the God who loves us. The thing that has that makes us different is that we've been captivated by the beauty of Jesus. And that because Jesus has won our hearts, that our affections cannot be won by the um, lull of comfort and ease and safety. At best, a life of comfort and ease and perpetual happiness is a reflection of the kind of life that God intended for his people but we missed out on because of our rebellion. At best, those things are You know, a, a picture of what life will one day look like when God's kingdom has fully and completely and finally come. But more often, I think, the things that we think we need in order to be happy are just a mirage. And we jump into them and we embrace them and then we discover that they don't satisfy. And so we jump into the next one and the next one and the next one. And we don't realize that we're starving. Christians can live faithfully in Babylon not because we're better than anybody else but because our hearts have been captivated by the beauty of God by the beauty of Jesus and once we've seen the beauty of his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf, we just can't be satisfied we just can't be satisfied by anything less I'll finish with this I um, most of you guys know this that uh, Ashley and I lived in Scotland for three years and I went to seminary there and I had a professor who, um, though he lived most of his life in the city in Edinburgh, he, he was, um, you know, he'd grown up in like a, in the Highlands, and he was always telling these stories about um, the rural, you know, coastline of Scotland is dotted with these fishing villages. And, um, and so many, a professor was always telling us these stories about these fishing villages, and so many of these villages are where they are because there was a natural harbor there. And the village grew up around this harbor and the fishing industry. Um, that, that thrived in them, and he would tell these stories about, you know, uh, the, the whole community um, living and dying on the basis of the, the, the catch, you know, the, the, the fisherman's ability to um, you know, to catch fish and to bring them to market. And he would he would talk about, you know, um, fishermen going out into the open ocean, and uh, and for days and for weeks at a time, you know, fishing and catching fish and coming back into the safety of the harbor. But oftentimes, as they would come back into the harbor, because it's a natural harbor, there would be this point, or there would be this rock. Um, and as they're approaching it, you know, with just the, uh, the movement of a wave, or a swell, or whatever, you could be dashed upon this rock. And the ship, you know, the cargo would be lost, maybe the, the crew would be lost, and it would be devastating. Uh, not just for individuals affected, but for the life of this entire village. And yet as soon as you get beyond that rock into the safety of the harbor, it's that rock, that thing that was about to kill you, that is what actually keeps you safe. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. That there is a way to look at Christianity that, that, that says, gosh, this might kill me. And it looks like I'm being asked to give up so much um, and to live with such a, you know, <laughs> I don't know, to live so meagerly. And yet, on the other side of that rock, you realize that you're able to live, you are able to venture out into the unknown ocean, into the open waters of the ocean, to live a life of adventure and to be sustained um, by the catch because there is the safety of the harbor. That's the good news of the gospel, guys. That in Jesus, that we are safe, that we are secure, that we are loved, that this is our Father's world. And because our Father is in control, we can enter into the world with a subversive love. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the book of Daniel, for this wonderful picture of faithfulness in an age that is um, a long time ago and yet not so different than our own. God, I pray that you would enable us to live boldly, faithfully, loving our culture, and yet subtly subverting its comfort and its lull of false pleasure. Because we know, God, that you are in control that we wouldn't that wouldn't just be a phrase that we articulate but that would it be it would be an experience that we have known i pray that you would know us that we would know you as our father in jesus name amen